0: Good evening. The House passes a voting bill. Can it get past the Senate? Over a thousand Americans are still in Afghanistan. How did we get there? A new governor says uh, lays out her priorities and a fight over development in Soho. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. House lawmakers approved new legislation aimed at protecting the right to vote on Tuesday amid a wave of restrictive new election laws from Republican-controlled state legislatures. The bill is named for... Georgia, the Georgia congressman and civil rights leader John Lewis, who died last year, Democrats say the bill known as H.R. 4 would strengthen the Voting Rights Act of 1965, which had been weakened by a pair of Supreme Court rulings over the course of the last decade, and supporters say they would make it more difficult for states to restrict future voting access While the bill passed the House along party lines with 219 Democrats in favor and all 212 Republicans opposed, it now faces steep GOP opposition in the evenly divided Senate. Republicans have characterized the legislation as a federal overreach into the state's role in election processes. But today, the Reverend William Barber of the Poor People's Campaign was outside the House demanding action.
1: We are asking the House and this speaker who has been so clear on the issues to hold the line yeah. to say to the Senate, you cannot use the filibuster to be a modern day form of interposition and nullification. Well, Dr. King denounced that 58 years ago at the March on Washington, interposition and nullification. And we need to have all of this. So hold the line and say on the behalf of poor and low wealth people who will be hurt. These voting rights suppression bills are not just hurting black people, it's hitting black people, it's hitting brown people, it's going to hit Asian people, it's going to hit native people, it's going to hit disabled people, and they're going to hurt poor and low wealth people.
0: And that is the Reverend William Barber. While Biden has spoken about the urgent threat to the right to vote, he's faced increasing criticism from his allies for not doing more to ensure that federal voting legislation becomes law. Voting rights groups have called on Biden to come out in support of eliminating or changing the filibuster rules in order to allow voting rights bills to pass with a simple majority, sidestepping widespread Republican opposition. And two members of Congress made an unauthorized whirlwind trip to Kabul early Tuesday, leaving less than 24 hours later on a flight used for evacuating U.S. citizens, allies and vulnerable Afghans. The visits by Dem- Massachusetts Democrat Representative Seth Moulton and Michigan Republican Peter Mayer, which was not approved as part of the normal process for congressional fact-finding trips, served as a distraction for military and civilian uh, staffers attempting to carry out frenzied rescue efforts, as according to people familiar with the trip, who spoke on the condition of anonymity to the Associated Press because they were not authorized to talk about the matter. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, for her part, was pretty irate about it today.
2: We did not want anybody to think that this was a good idea and that they should try to follow suit. It's an important thing. We want to make sure they were safe for themselves, but also for what consequences could flow a ramification if something happened to them while they were there. So they have to make their own case as to why they went and this or that. But it was not, in my view, a good idea. You need the approval of your committee chair in order to do that. And we've put out the word to committee chairs, there ain't gonna be no planes or this or that for, for people going to the region. I don't think they had any committee approval
0: And Pelosi's condemnation of the trip was echoed by Republican Kevin McCarthy, who's usually very much on the opposite side on this one issue. They both agreed that uh, members of Congress should not be traveling to Afghanistan where they might be kidnapped and held or killed. And then what would happen next? Would we have a war uh, over that? I mean they – they don't realize the danger they're putting the country in by taking these trips. It's not clear how the lawmakers, both of whom served in Iraq before being elected to Congress, first entered Afghanistan. Moulton's office didn't confirm the trip until the plane evacuating the members of Congress left Afghanistan's airspace, while Mayor's office has not responded to media inquiries. And Secretary of State Antony Blinken said today that as many as 1,500 Americans may be awaiting evacuation from Afghanistan, a figure that suggests the U.S. may accomplish its highest priority for the Kabul airlift, rescuing U.S. citizens ahead of President Joe Biden's Tuesday deadline. Untold, thousands of at-risk Afghans, however, still are struggling to get into the Kabul airport, while many thousands of other Afghans already have flown to safety in 12 days of around-the-clock flights. I know the president has said he takes responsibility. And I know all of my colleagues across government feel the same way. And I can tell you that there will be plenty of time to look back at the last six or seven months, to look back at the last 20 years, and to look to see what we might have done differently, what we might have done sooner, what we might have done more effectively. But I have to tell you that that right now my entire focus is on the mission at hand, and there's going to be, as I said, plenty of time to do an accounting of this when we get through that mission. Secretary of State Antony Blinken. Blinken said the State Department estimates there were about 6,000 Americans wanting to leave Afghanistan when the airlift began August 14th, as the Taliban took the capital after a stunning military conquest. About 4,500 Americans have been evacuated so far, Blinken said, and among the rest, some are understandably very scared. Professor David Gibbs is professor of history at the University of Arizona has written extensively about NATO and the war in Afghanistan he spoke with WBAI earlier today
3: it should be noted that the Taliban are sort of an evolution of a series of groups strongly backed by the United States during the 1980s you know, their basic ideology and mode of practice isn't that much different from the groups the US was backing and so you know this is what is called blowback and in intelligence practice we start an operation and then it goes against you. I know we spent a vast sum of money and effort in the 80s building up these groups, and then they became the Taliban and turned against the United States. Well, the Taliban came to power in 1996 taking Kabul. There's no question they're they're an exceptionally repressive and uh, violent group that set a very bad record when they were in power. The one positive, I guess you could say, is that the country was fairly close to being at peace. By the late 90s, they subdued most parts of afghanistan except a very small area in the northeast of the country by around two thousand that is a positive and the reason is the country been at war for so many years and they were on the verge of ending that war And the united states overthrew them of course in late 2001 reigniting war that has so far lasted for 20 years the principal element of their popularity is more kind of a maybe negative popularity and that basically the government of afghanistan under ashraf ghani it was effectively a puppet government and i think the evidence for that is clear the fact that it disintegrated so quickly when the united states was about to leave underscores it had no real legitimacy it was seen as an imposition of foreign powers it was an outgrowth of a conference that took place not in afghanistan but in bonn germany under u.s and nato supervision in 2001 2002 foreign imposed government and afghans even more so than most people, are very nationalistic and really resent the idea of a puppet government. It's not so much the popularity of the Taliban as the extraordinary unpopularity of what was perceived to be a puppet government. There were no big pitched battles or anything like that. It wasn't any brilliant military strategy. It was that the government disintegrated, essentially, in province after province, and the Taliban filled vacuum. In terms of what's coming for the Afghan people, It's possible and one hopes that in 20 years in the opposition, the Taliban have learned some lessons from their past misrule and will be less brutal this time around. They clearly are the government of Afghanistan at this point in time. The only positive you can say about it, as in the past, is that this is the end or likely the end of warfare or very close to the end of warfare. And that certainly is a good thing for the people of Afghanistan.
0: One question I had was about Osama bin Laden and the tie to Osama bin Laden.
3: Osama bin Laden was the son of one of the richest families in Saudi Arabia who worked pretty closely with the CIA during the 1980s fighting the Soviets. Again, this is a case of blowback. The United States played a significant role in making possible the creation of the Taliban during the 1980s and working with Osama bin Laden. Then Osama bin Laden, working from Afghanistan, helped orchestrate the 9-11 terrorist attacks which was, of course, a brutal attack, killed 3,000 innocent people. Obviously, the overthrow of the Taliban was claimed to be justified by the need to prevent future acts of terrorism. The irony, of course, is that in doing so, it killed about 6,000 Americans in Afghanistan, both the U.S. military and contractors, twice what were killed in 9-11. It wasted $2.3 trillion, far more than the cost of the 9-11 terrorist attacks, the U.S. attack on Afghanistan in 2001 was intended to deal with the problem of terrorism, the cure was worse than the disease. We did far more damage to ourselves by getting involved in a ground war in Afghanistan than ever took place as a result of Al-Qaeda. You could say, as a means of promoting U.S. security, U.S. intervention in Afghanistan has been an unmitigated disaster.
0: And that's Professor David Gibbs. He's a professor of history at the University of Arizona and has written extensively about NATO and the war in Afghanistan. On a lighter note, the United States military said an Afghan baby girl was born on a C-17 military aircraft during the massive evacuation that will carry the experience with her. Her parents named her after the plane's call sign, REACH. The girl was born Saturday and members of the 86 medical group helped in her birth as a plane flew from Kabul to Ramstein Air Base in Germany. Two other babies whose parents were evacuated from Afghanistan have been born over the past week at Landstuhl Regional Medical Center, the U.S. military hospital in Germany. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. The World Health Organization met today. Among the questions was how the world body plans to investigate the origins of the coronavirus, which apparently first appeared in Wuhan, China, and has been the target of U.S. conspiracy theories of sorts, saying that China somehow released the virus from their uh, facility, a virus facility that they run in Wuhan. China has been accusing the United States in uh, retaliation of scapegoating, Floating its own conspiracy theory, that the U.S. developed the coronavirus as a bioweapon targeting China. The allegations come as a U.S.-sponsored uh, report by the U.S. intelligence agencies is about to be released, uh, which will give our the America's fi- uh, final word on what they think happened with the, uh, with the virus and whether or not China was involved in it. Uh, the WHO, WHO, World Health Organization, uh, addressed the question earlier today.
4: We've heard statements from our Chinese colleagues that there are studies that are underway um, in China. Um, we would have to ask them specifically what those studies are, and we look forward to the results of those. These include studies of uh, looking at serology, looking at sera that is stored from 2019, looking at tracing back of animals um, that are there. I don't have the specifics on these exact studies. We very much look forward to what those studies are. There should be no delay in actually carrying those out. The international team, we had a meeting with them today. In fact, we've had several meetings with them. Some of them are continuing to discuss with their colleagues in China. There are many bilateral research relationships that are happening with scientists around the world, and these studies are starting to be published. We need to gather all information that we have in China and elsewhere to be able to get to the bottom of this. From our point of view, it's time to you know move on, get on with this, and really keep it rooted in the science we are hoping for is that any release of information on future studies goes from a political debate to a scientific one. Dr. Ryan is online and has something to add.
1: When you actually look at the the report of the international mission, they laid out studies that should be carried out by all parties, uh, including China and outside. There's been nothing to prevent those uh, studies actually proceeding. And there is no need as such for a new international team to go to the field unless that is absolutely uh, required. These are important ecologic and uh, clinical and other studies that rely on actually getting data and getting that data made available. And a lot of the work is actually going out and collecting that data or releasing that data that already uh, exists. And uh, we do look forward to to getting updates uh, from our Chinese colleagues on the progress uh, with those studies. All of that data from both China and from the other international studies will be considered by the scientific advisory group on origin. That is the point is to be able to bring all of that data into the open.
0: And that was Dr. Mike Ryan uh, of the World Health Organization. So now we're going to move on to the next story. Graphic body camera video kept secret for more than two years shows a Louisiana State Police trooper pummeling a black motorist 18 times with a flashlight and attack the trooper defended as pain compliance. I'm not resisting. I'm not resisting. Aaron Larry Bowman can be heard screaming between blows on the footage obtained by the Associated Press. The May 2019 beating. Following a traffic stop, left him with a broken jaw, three broken ribs, a broken wrist, and a gash to his head that required six staples to close. Uh, we're going to hear a clip from that uh, video footage, and um, I suggest to turn down the radio and come back in about half a minute if uh, you're disturbed by that.
4: Hold on. Hang tight. <clears throat> I haven't did
1: nothing. Give me your hand.
0: Moments encounter near his Monroe home came less than three weeks after troopers from the same embattled agency punched, stunned, and dragged another black motorist, Ronald Green, before he died in police custody on a rural roadside in northeast Louisiana. Video of Green's death similarly remained under wraps before it was obtained by the news media and published earlier this year. Federal prosecutors are examining both cases in a widening investigation into police brutality and potential cover-ups involving both troopers and state police brass. Louisiana State Police didn't investigate. The attack on Bowman until 536 days after it occurred, even though it was captured on body camera, and only did so weeks after Bowman brought a civil suit. And back in New York, New York's new governor, Kathy Hochul, promised more government transparency on her first day in office. And by day's end, her administration had quietly delivered it by acknowledging nearly 12,000 more deaths in the state from COVID 19 that had been publicized by her predecessor, Andrew Cuomo. In her first uh, speech to the state of New York as Governor, uh, Governor Hochul laid out some of her priorities for her coming administration.
2: We need to require vaccinations for all school personnel with an option to test out weekly, at least for now. To accomplish this in New York, we need partnerships with all levels of government. And I'm working now on getting this done. New York is launching a back-to-school COVID-19 testing program to make testing for students and staff widely available and convenient. I'm also immediately directing the Department of Health to institute universal masking for anyone entering our schools. Later this week, I'll announce a series of school-related policies that will be concise and consistent, giving the school districts what they have been asking for. President Biden and our federal delegation, led by Senators Schumer and Gillibrand, worked hard to secure funds for renters, landlords, workers, and more. But I am not at all satisfied with the pace that this COVID relief is getting out the door. I want the money out now. I want it out with no more excuses and delays. We're launching a new targeted campaign to reach more New Yorkers on rental relief. I'm hiring more staff, to process applications immediately. I'm also assigning a top team to identify and remove any barriers that remain. New Yorkers should know, if you apply and qualify for this money, you will be protected from eviction for a solid year. Let me repeat, if you apply and qualify, you will not be evicted for a year. Today. I'm directing an overhaul of state government policies on sexual harassment and ethics, starting with requiring that all training be done live, instead of allowing people to click their way through a class. In a new era of transparency, one of my hallmarks in my administration will focus on open ethical governing that New Yorkers will trust.
0: And that is Governor Kathy Hochul laying out some of her priorities for coming administration. And closer, even closer to home, a critical hearing on the contentious Soho-Noho rezoning Monday night lasted more than a full five hours. It saw scores of people testify both for and against the plan. Manhattan borough President Gail Brewer presided over the marathon affair, part of her land use review of the proposal under ULURP. The full city process can take more than a year and a half. Uh, more than half a year to complete Brewer is under a deadline to issue her advisory opinion on the proposed rezoning by August 26, after which the review comes uh, moves on to the Department of City Planning before going to the full city council for a full vote that is binding. Mayor de Blasio and City Planning are currently in a mad scramble to get the Soho NoHo ULERP approved under the wire before he's term limited out of office at the end of the year. The hearing followed the pattern set by previous ones on the hot button issue. Local residents, most of them long timers, overwhelmed. He spoke out against the rezoning, while young, largely male advocates, presumably mostly from the group Open New York, supported it. Mixing things up a bit this time, a series of young speakers saying they were testifying on behalf of village preservation raised objections to the plan. Local residents urged Brewer and the de Blasio administration to shift their focus off of NOHO. Soho and Chinatown and said look at several other large sites that would be developed with up to 100 percent affordable housing. These include five World Trade Center plus a federally owned garage on Howard Street. In addition, some call for affordable units to be built on the vacant lot owned by Trinity Real Estate at Duarte Square, at Canal Street and 6th Avenue. That is currently home to the Gitano outdoor party space. Trinity initially planned a large residential tower with a public school at its space for the site, but later swapped it. An off- in a, uh, for an office tower project instead, uh, but there has been no headway in the deal. Two local elected officials savage the rezoning scheme, including Assemblymember Deborah Glick and Congress Member Carolyn Maloney. Opponents note that the rezoning has major loopholes that would allow market rate developers to uh, – Avoid including affordable housing in their projects, such as if they don't create more than twenty five thousand square feet of new residential space, although the current uh, council city council person in that area, Margaret Chin, is a strong supporter of the project, along with the mayor. the newly elected replacement, Christopher Marty, is a opponent and it ran as an opponent uh, winning sixty percent in a nine way race uh, as an opponent to the project. He spoke with WBAI earlier today.
5: I was going to have an important vote, whether she supports the upzoning of Soho, Noho and Chinatown, or if she sides with the community, former council member Alan Gerson and Catherine Freed and myself in rejecting this plan. Uh, The current plan is pretty outrageous. A developer could show financial hardship and build no affordable housing, even though this is the narrative that the, the Blasio administration has been pushing to get this rezoning through. In addition, it will allow for a lot more commercial use. It doesn't mandate that uh, any developer has to build residential use. And it's going to create so much displacement. If you look where the areas of opportunity are, they're on Canal Street. That's what everyone considers Chinatown and not Soho and Noho. And so this is just going to be the continual effort of major overdevelopment around Chinatown that's going to affect not only Chinatown, but the Lower East Side.
0: What's the background to all of this?
5: Soho currently, and it has been for the past 40 or 50 years, a manufacturing district. And as it became more residential, first were artists who really created this community, and now other people, the city and residents decided that maybe the manufacturing zoning is not the best use for this area, and that we have to make apartments legal because right now, since it's a manufacturing, unless you are an artist living in a lost law, uh, you're probably living in Soho illegally. There's also rules that don't allow any storefronts to exist in a manufacturing zone, making changes to that. So people acknowledge on all sides of the spectrum that there has to be some type of change in Soho. I believe this this plan is a developer-driven plan because it not only legalizes storefronts, but it allows them to have their basement and second floor of any building. Similar to you see now, whether it's the Nike, the Adidas, or the UniGlo store, where they're pretty much displacing residents of those buildings just to have more office space. So I think this plan is pretty bad. We all acknowledge that some change has to happen, but this is not the right one. And the question we've been asking for years, the city still hasn't answered. And I think we should delay it until the next administration continue engaging with the community and support the community plan of an alternative rezoning for Soho Noho.
0: And you're the new city council person (laughs) in this district, has a big say over development projects in their district, but that's only if it supports large-scale development and not if it doesn't. That's what it seems. Is that what's going on?
5: Yeah. Our election showed that we have a strong mandate because we ran solely on land use. Our platform for our campaign was talking about Soho and NoHo, uh, passing the Chinatown Working Group, the development of Power Hughes and the seaport. And we got over 60% in a nine-person race. And so we had a clear mandate to have a say when it comes to the future of our district, when it comes to land use. And it's really disappointing that our city council member and this administration is trying to push it too quickly and not give us an opportunity to continue the dialogue with our community to pass something that's community-based and not developer.
0: They're trying to get it, the construction beginning and everything happening before the administration leaves in just a matter of months.
5: Yeah, it's a shame. This is what de Blasio's track record and his legacy will be. Now they want to upzone one of the few historic districts that we have in the city.
0: They just want to increase the tax base for the city, basically.
5: Yeah. or give kickbacks to the people that have supported him for his run for mayor, for president, and potentially he's thinking about running for governor as well.
0: Everything depends on how Gail Brewer votes today.
5: Her vote is a no, is non-binding vote, but it will have a great influence on the outcome. If she votes no, it gives the community, gives other elected officials a great positioning to say that we shouldn't do this now. If she votes yes, then the clock continues through the Euler process, and we have to continue to organize, we have to continue to make noise for the city planning hearing, which is scheduled for September 2nd, and then potentially the city council vote, which will come in October.
0: Wow, that's pretty quick. Incoming First District City Council member, Christopher Marty. And finally, State Senator Brian Benjamin of Manhattan is set to become the next lieutenant governor of New York and join Governor Kathy Hochul's administration. According to reports, Benjamin will be the second black man to hold the lieutenant governor's job, joining a history-making administration led by the first woman to serve as the state's chief executive. Hochul and Benjamin are expected to appear together at an event in New York City tomorrow. Benjamin is a former candidate for New York City Comptroller, a Harlem lawmaker. Benjamin provides geographic balance to a potential statewide ticket in 2022 as Hochul seeks a full four-year term. Benjamin has also been a prominent voice in the legislature for criminal justice law changes and overhauling the state's bail laws. And that's some of the news for Wednesday, August 25th, 2021. The news was produced with Linda Perry. Our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.